You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. Well, hey, if you've been with us uh, the last two weeks, whether here in person or tuning in online, uh, you'll know that we've been in our Best Sermons Ever series. It's been great. The first week we had Pastor Bob uh, come and, and bring the word for us. And then last week uh, we had Pastor Daryl, um, Chancellor of Phoenix Seminary, uh, join us as well. And so we're in week three. So that means the last but not least, the bestest of best sermons that you'll ever hear. He's hating that I'm saying that right now. Uh, we're excited to have Scott Schwartzentrooper with us today. Uh, many of you know Scott. He is the president of I-68 uh, Mexico Missions. Um, if you've been around um, North Valley for some time now, you'll know that uh, this partnership is, is, is a deep uh, just relationship that we have with Scott and their team. And uh, we've been sending for the last several years teams down there in March to, to, to build homes. And it's just been such a blessing to, to partner with them, with Scott, with Shannon, and the work that they're doing down there in Jesus' name. And so uh, we're so excited for Scott Swartz and Trooper to, to be here this morning to bring the word. So with that being said, would you help me join uh, at welcoming Scott? Good morning. Great to be with you today. It's always an honor and a privilege and um, come preach and be with you. And I love when uh, Ryan sends me a note and says, hey, are you available to preach? It really doesn't matter what's going on. I, I try and change the schedule so that I can be here with you. So uh, love that. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation 5. If you're new to the Bible, new to the church, we're glad that you're here. It's... Uh, very last book of the Bible. It makes it easy to find. If you're on your tablet or phone, just scroll all the way down and you'll get to Revelation. A lot of times when we think about Revelation, someone comes and tells me they want to talk about Revelation in the end times. I roll my eyes a little bit and I'm like, okay, here we go. Here's some crackpot that wants to talk about what day, hour, and season, and time all this is going to start taking place. There's a lot of books and blogs and seminars written about the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of speculation and a lot of fighting about what the illustrations and imagery are all meaning and when it's going to happen. And, and we all want to fight and, and put our feet in the ground and say, you know, this is the day and the hour and the time. And maybe you've seen some of those things online. But is that really why God would give us the book of Revelation? So that we can speculate about things that he has not revealed? So what is Revelation about and why, is he, why has he given it to us? It's found in the, the word revelation. It's the title of the book, but the word itself, revelation, gives us a clue as to what the book of Revelation is about. It's a revelation. It's a revealing. It's an unveiling. It's a making something known. So the question we want to ask is, is what's being made known? Who's making it known and who's it for and, and what is it? And what impact does it have on us? So the point of revelation is not to speculate and understand exactly what every single illustration and imagery might be when it comes, there's, there's a much deeper practical, it may be the most practical book in the Bible for us today. It's a revelation from God to the Apostle John for the church. And if we read Revelation 2 and 3, our leadership team did this this week, there's seven letters written to seven different churches and there are things that Jesus commends the church for. There are things that Jesus condemns the church for. There are corrections that Jesus gives each church. And there are promises made to each church. 
And there's seven specific churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, but it's deeper than that. It goes beyond that. It's, they're written to the eternal church. They're written to us. They're written to God's people. So it's a revelation from God to John to the church, which means you and me that are here today. So this letter is written to us with what purpose in mind? It's a revealing, it's an announcing, it's a making known the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's something that we don't talk or think or focus on a whole lot, but the second coming of Jesus, Jesus Christ is mentioned a lot in Scripture. There are 50 times in the New Testament where it says, be ready for the second coming. And so it's a very practical and important um, message for us today. And you say, well, well, how does this work? How does this all tie together? And a really simple illustration that kept coming to mind, if we know what's coming, will that not impact what we're doing today? If we knew that a business or a stock tomorrow was going to multiply a million times, wouldn't that not change what we're doing right now? Would we not go sell and cash out and leverage and borrow and, and sell the family pet in order to cash it out? and invest it in stock XYZ because it's going to pay off a million times tomorrow. If you needed to buy a car today and you knew from a trustworthy source that months from now you're going to be in a car accident, and if you buy car A, you will not survive, but if you buy car B, you will survive. Would that not determine which car you bought? This is a very simple way to think of the book of Revelation. It's very practical. I love how Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, if you ever read his sermons, you'll understand why he has that nickname. Someone that came and asked him about Revelation 8, because it's mentioned that there's seven trumpets. He's like, hey, can you explain the seven trumpets to me? And Spurgeon replied, no, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape the wrath to come. And that is really what the book of Revelation is about. It is giving us a crystal clear, very vivid picture of what is coming so that we can live accordingly today. Very helpful, very practical. We need this book for, for several reasons. We need this book so that we don't waste our lives. We need to know what's in Revelation so that we don't spend our lives on trivial trinkets that won't last. And we also need the book of Revelation to hold on. It is full of those seven letters that we work through. Satan has three plays. He can deceive us, he can seduce us, and he can persecute us. And so we are constantly as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, under attack from the enemy to get us off track and stop believing. And so when we read what's true in Revelation, we have the strength and the hope and the courage to hold on. So we need this letter to not waste our lives, and we need this letter to hold on and endure to the end. When Ryan sent a note a while back and said, hey, will invited me to preach, he said, talk about North Valley, talk about I-68 and the partnership, and my mind immediately went to tackling the subject of, of why do we do missions? Why does North Valley and I-68 make such a great partnership? And so my mind went to Revelation 5, because as we are looking into the future on what's to come, and that informs how we're going to live today, it really compels everything we do in missions. So if you have it open in <clears throat> Revelation 5, I want to read through it, and then we will identify four themes in this book. I saw, John, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? 
and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. John saw four things that are revealed in this chapter. And so those four things are our four themes. And we're going to determine how we are to live today, and we're going to explain why missions exist. Why do we go on mission? The first thing he sees in verse 1 is, I saw him who sat on the throne. So the first thing John sees is a throne. And this throne is a carryover from Revelation chapter 4. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5, the throne of God is mentioned 15 times. When you see something on repeat, you kind of get the clue. I think this is what they're talking about. I think they're talking about the throne. So all the focus and all the attention in heaven is based, centered around, focused on the throne, the throne of God. There's this glass sea around it, and there's elders circled around it, and there's creatures circled around it, and there's thousands and myriads and myriads of angels circled around it. There's one point, and there's one focus. It's the throne of God. What does the throne of God represent? Power and dominion and sovereignty and authority. And it's different, and it's, it's different than any other, any seat of power we might consider. That is ultimate dominion and it is ultimate authority. It is honor. It is rule. It is supremacy. God there is the designer and the determiner and the creator and the sustainer of all things. It is the, the central power hub of all creation. Everything happens there. There's no committee meetings there. We'll make it simple. There's no... There's no discussions, there's no debates, there's no suggestions given, there's no suggestion box about how things should go. Everything flows out of the throne. He has complete wisdom, he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. And whatever he wills, will happen, because he has that type of authority. The church that John was writing to often thought that the seat of power laid in Rome. Today we struggle with that and we hear people arguing about that. We think the seat of power is in Washington, D.C., or some other capital city. That is not true. The seat of power 
is in the throne room of heaven and God is sitting on his throne. And so all power, all dominion, all authority is focused on this throne. In chapter 4, verse 8, we see a song being sung to God on the throne. And it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God always has been, he he is right now, and he always will be. And R.C. Sproul in his work on Isaiah 6 does a helpful thing for us with this holy, 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 because it's repeated there. It's sung there the first time. This is a repeat of that song that's prophesied in Isaiah 6. And Sproul tells us that the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew language, when they would repeat something, that meant it was really important. Listen up. You know, if you tell your kids one thing, uh, tell your kids something one time and they don't listen, you repeat it, and then you get really serious. Holy, holy, holy is the only characteristic of God repeated three times. We know God for his love, amen. We know God for his kindness and his generosity and his sovereignty. We know God for all of his characteristics that are displayed in the word of God. Holiness is the only characteristic that is repeated three times. So the scriptures are making something very important to us. God's holiness is the determining, the decisive quality of God, his holiness. And isn't it interesting that our world is in the condition that it's in, and I would say our world and even sometimes in our church, God's holiness is the most diminished characteristic of God. We want to talk about the things he wants to give us, his generosity. We want to talk about his love. All those things are true and right and good, but it is his holiness that is a distinctive characteristic that sets him apart from everything else. If you are hungry for more of God, if you are hungry to transform your life, if you are hungry to just experience all that the Christian life has for you, spend all your time, attention, focus, and heart exploring the holiness of God. It will single-handedly transform your life in ways you, you cannot imagine right now. When we get a glimpse and we get a picture of God's holiness, it changes how we think, it changes the desires of our heart, it changes the decisions we make. It changes our priorities and our passions. It changes how we respond to people. Spend the rest of your life discovering the holiness of God. We will not see it fully until we get there, but we have been given a lot to understand. Anywhere scripture talks about holiness, understand the context. Anywhere scripture talks about holiness, find the cross-references. Study holiness. It It will change who you are. It will be the most fulfilling worthy thing you could do with your lives is to pursue the holiness of God. And so what is our relationship to this throne? Why does it matter that God is on his throne? My mind goes to Genesis chapter 3 where Satan is tempting Adam and Eve. He deceives Eve and, and Adam rebels. And what's the rebellion that Adam does? What's, what's the temptation, the seduction, the lie that Satan gives to Adam? It's like, hey, if you eat this fruit that God told you not to, you'll get your own throne. That's that's the seduction. Yeah, God's on his throne and the the Garden of Eden is amazing and he's given it all to you to enjoy, but he's holding out on you because he doesn't want you to have a throne. So what does Adam do? He believes that lie. He eats the apple because he wants his own throne. And in that moment, he dies spiritually. He doesn't physically die immediately, but he spiritually dies, and he's given a corrupt nature. And because we are descendants of Adam, we are born with that corrupt, dead, sinful, spiritual nature. 
And so we are born in rebellion to the throne. We are born wanting to dethrone God because we want to be on the throne. We are born enemies of the throne. Even if we're not blatant, vocal, outright enemies, in our hearts, even denying that God is on his throne is an act of rebellion against the throne. Paul does a marvelous job of this in Romans chapter 1. We fail to acknowledge that God is on the throne. We fail to honor that God is on the throne. We fail to worship God on his throne. We exchange the glory of the throne for glory of created things. We exchange the truth of the throne for a lie. And so we must acknowledge that in us, until Christ saves us, we are enemies of the throne. And this is not... When we say we're going to worship and acknowledge and honor that God is on his throne, this is not just lip service. Yes, we need to give a confession to it with our mouths, but this is a heart posture. When people look at your lives, do they, do they say, wow, look at that person. Is that, what we're, is that the posture of our hearts? Are we trying to create a life that people will admire? Or are we trying to create a life that will draw people to the throne of God because that is what is true? So where are you at today? Are you surrendered and worshiping God on the throne? Are you acknowledging and confessing? Like in, in your heart of hearts, is it what makes your heart beat? Or is there a lot of your days and a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your dreams focused upon being on the throne? Our world knows this about us, maybe even better than we do. Think about businesses and their advertising. Think about a silly Burger King. Let's make it your way. You're the king, you make it your way. All of advertising that's successful focuses on that desire inside of us to be on the throne. So we must see this, we must acknowledge this, we must confess this, and we must surrender the throne and worship the only rightful one who is on the throne. And so why do we do missions? Because God is on the throne, and that is true. And if, we don't, if people don't know it, they will spend all eternity wishing they had known it. So the first thing John saw was the throne. Secondly, it's also in verse 1. Saw a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. I'm reading out of the NSB, NASB. The ESV calls it a scroll. Scroll book, same, same truth, the same thing is being said there. I honestly think scroll is probably a better translation. It's a better image in my mind. So if I say book or scroll, I'm saying the same thing. I don't mean to be confusing. But it's a book, and it's in the right hand. So all of the tension that's in heaven, that's, faced, that's focused on the throne. So imagine this in your minds. All this worship and all this praise and everything's being circled around the throne. All of a sudden, John's attention and all of heaven shifts and focuses in on this book that's in the right hand of God. And chapter 5 of Revelation gives us two conditions of this book. It's sealed and then it's unsealed. And by sealed, it means that it is closed and it has seven seals on it. And so we can think about this in a helpful way as a last will and testament, the final will and testament of God who is on the throne. And the only one who knows in that book is the one who has written it. The one who has decreed everything in that book is the one who knows what's in there and right now it's sealed. And until it's unsealed, the future will not come. The second coming of Christ will not happen 
until God determines there's someone worthy to open the scroll, to open the book, and usher in the future. We see in chat in verse 3, no one in heaven, on earth, under the earth, was able to open the book or look into it. There's an emphasis there that John is making, no one. And in case you didn't understand who no one was, he says no one on heaven, no one on earth, or under the earth is worthy to open the scroll. In the next verse, he's greatly weeping because no one, and he repeats it a third time, no one. There's an emphasis here that there is no one worthy. And the silence of heaven and earth and under the earth reveals the sinful condition of man right now. No one is worthy. And I think it's amazing that reading through the book of Revelation, there's very few times where John engages with the vision. This is one of them, and it's probably the most expressive, descriptive response we're given. John, for a split second, sees the, the book, and he knows what's in there, and he knows what's at stake, and he weeps greatly. The King James says he wept and he wept. I think some versions say he wept and he wept and he wept. Like he, he's ugly crying right now. He is experiencing an unbearable, unthinkable, unimaginable loss. If that scroll doesn't get open, then it's all for nothing. None of God's promises are true. Jesus is not coming back. You think about where John's at right now. He's isolated on the island of Patmos. He's the last man standing. All his fellow apostles have been died, have been murdered, martyred for years. Maybe a decade or two has gone by. He's the only one there. All the churches are being persecuted. He's writing a letter to get them to hang on and hold on. He's suffered and he's put, he's bet the farm that the promises in this book are true. And for a split second, he gets a picture that it's not true. There's no one worthy to open the book. It was all for nothing. There are no problems. Satan wins. Sin wins. Death wins. Christ is defeated. This is what he's experiencing in a moment. What does that tell us about John? It very clearly communicates us that 100% of his hope was in Jesus Christ. He had no hope in any other thing. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then he's done. He has placed all of his hope in Christ. Can we say the same thing? If we're John, if we're in this moment, I mean, this, this is the verse that has worked me over and worked me over and worked me over as I've been preparing for this. Would I be as devastated as John was in this moment? Is 100% of my hope in Jesus Christ returning? Or am I busy and distracted and prioritizing some temporary trinkets? Am I trying to find hope in something else other than Jesus Christ returning? Other than the hope that he has promised? This is a a very relevant question for us to ask. There's a pastor, um, I took this from online, um, and I'm glad you're sitting down because when I read it, it knocked me down. And it's a pastor that that put online, but it's me saying it to you. And I believe it's what we need to hear. And here's the quote. Many of us have chosen heaven over hell. Praise God, amen for that. But there are very few of you who have chosen heaven over earth. We can get so consumed with what's happening here that our hope lies here 
and our, our devastation at loss and our, our dreams and aspirations are just, they're here on earth and they will fail. It's going to end. Read the book of Revelation. This earth will be destroyed, but there's a new one coming. And that is where we need to hold on to our hope. And this is why we have the book of Revelation. So that the churches would know where to place their hope. God does not want us to place our hope in something that will not withstand. He wants us to place our hope in him because it will withstand. So where is your hope? Is your hope entirely in the promises of God and the coming of Christ a second time? Why do we do missions? Because without this hope, everything else will fail. Why do we do missions? Because unsealing the book, the promises held there are what each one of us need. So we, John saw the throne. John saw the, the book. Number three, verse nine and 10. And And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. We need to return to verse five and six because the elder commands John to stop weeping. He's in this moment of devastation because no one is worthy to open the seal and God decrees and determines what it will require of the worthy one to open it. And so now the elder commands John to stop weeping. And he says, Behold the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Verse 6, The lamb standing as if slain. So we see a truth here that's really important. We see three titles for the worthy one. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and the lamb. These are three identifiers of the worthy one. And so the elder is saying, to John, hey, you, you know the titles that the worthy one will hold? I'm, I'm repeating those titles from you out of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Romans, Matthew. I'm, I'm taking scripture and I'm showing to you that the worthy one, according to scripture, is here. And the elder draws his attention. So this is a very practical, this is kind of a side application note, but it's so helpful that I think I should mention it, is that when we are working to determine what is true and right and good and what God wants us to do, the answer to that will never, ever contradict this. It will always affirm and align with this. This is sufficient for everything we need to live the life God has called us to live. This week I had someone come into my office and and want to talk and I'm always excited to talk to the team. And he's like, Scott, I, I, had a, I had a vision. And I'm like, oh my goodness, here we go. You know, it always makes me nervous. And I just immediately start praying, okay, please, Lord, let his vision align with Scripture. Because he's very excited and he is very encouraged. But if his vision that he had contradicts Scripture, I'm going to have to be the bearer of bad news and burst his bubble. And I really don't want to do that. I'm really hoping and praying that whatever sense you got is actually because you were with the Word of God, with the Spirit, and He is leading you in a direction, and I get to confirm that. Another example that um, came to mind was when our daughter was dating, we always heard and recommended that when it was getting close to time for marriage, take the potential spouse on a mission trip. 
Because on a mission trip, even a short-term one like we provide for three days, the stress of it, the being out of your comfort zone, the, the lack of control, the trying to get along with a whole big group of people, it, it reveals what's underneath the surface. And so you want to know what you're dealing with. So if, you're, if you have a child or that's about to get married or if you're not sure the person you're dating is worthy, send them down to us. We'll be happy to file, <laughs> report back to you what we see. So we were doing this with our, in a sense, with our, our future son-in-law. And there was a situation on this trip that kept repeating itself based on one particular person over and over again. So we're in the car, vividly remember this. I think my wife does too. We're driving back and I just, I turned around and I, I said, hey, hey, what do you think about this whole situation that we've been talking about? And the first words out of his mouth were, <clears throat> well, when I filter it through scripture, I have no idea what he said after that. Because in that moment, my heart trusted him with my daughter. Do you understand? Like, if his go-to is the word of God, then you can have my daughter. That's good. That is how we are to live. Does it align with the word of God? Does it contradict the word of God? Or are we just ignoring it? Very practical. So we know that Jesus Christ is the worthy one because he is the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and the lamb that was slain. Secondly, we see in this song in verse 9 and 10, I'm going to read it one more time. We sang a new song, a new meaning, a different song, a different song than the song that was sung in chapter 4. And they're not taking worship from God. It is God's will that the Son be worshipped with God. And there is a new song being sung. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus Christ is worthy to open the book and usher in the future that God has because of what he has accomplished. He was slain, he purchased, and he has made. There's three things that he has accomplished in this song. He was with God, he is God from the beginning of time. He came to earth to proclaim the kingdom of God. He was crucified for that proclamation and his blood purchased for God a people. And that word purchased, I want to hone in on a second because I think it's neglected. I believe other versions say ransomed. And so get your mind around this language that's being used. Purchased, ransomed. What does that indicate? If a payment is being made for someone's ransom, that means someone is enslaved. Someone is imprisoned. Someone is in trouble and can't get out. And so someone else must come and ransom and purchase that person. And the blood of Christ pays that ransom. And many times we don't, we don't realize this. Somehow we've, we've turned Christianity into this idea of, well, well, Jesus is something to add on to my life to accomplish everything that I'm trying to accomplish. As if Jesus is some kind of B vitamin or B12 shot that will just, he's the missing nugget that we need to make all our dreams come true. That is not biblical language and that is absolutely positively not true. Jesus' blood came so that we may be ransomed. We are enslaved to our sin. We are imprisoned by our sinful dead condition. 
And there may be someone here today that, that understands what I'm talking about. There is a sin that just will not leave you alone. There is a sin that no matter what resolution or commitment you make, it'll last for a short time or a long time, but it, it trips you up again and again. You, you understand what's being said when the Bible says you're a slave to sin. You have wanted victory over it, and you are determined that if it was found out about you, your life would be over. You'd be humiliated, and you'd have to leave town. There is a sin that just eats away at you. And you are enslaved to it. You know this very well. And I'm here to tell you today that the reason that you, that we, that I, remain enslaved is because we keep looking in the mirror to break ourselves out of prison. We're in prison. We don't have a key to prison. We need someone to come ransom us. We need someone to unlock the door. And if this is you today, if you have a sin that you do not want to be found out, if you have a sin that's just crushing you and you're feeling the shame and the guilt and bearing the weight of it, glance at Jesus. That's all you got to do. Glance at Jesus and say, save me. He will not just unlock the door. He'll rip the door off that jail cell and he will embrace you. Look to Jesus. You do not have the power to get yourself out of the slavery of sin and death. You need a savior. Jesus did not come to make you better. He came to save you. I often think of Harriet Tubman, the great slave rescuer, and her quote comes to mind all the time. She says, I, I rescued a thousand slaves. I could have rescued a thousand more if they would admit that they were slaves. One of the things that holds us back from freedom and salvation and the life that God has for us is a refusal to admit that we are slaves to sin. Confess your sins. There's others of you that say, well, that's fine and that's good. And, and if they have a burden, um, thank God he gave me the self-discipline and the self-control and the, and the wherewithal to defeat my, my sinful behaviors. I would remind you of what James 2 says that if you break one law, you're a lawbreaker. If you do not murder, but you commit adultery, you're, you're a lawbreaker. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 that you don't even have to commit the act of adultery. You just have to look lustfully, and you're a lawbreaker. Jesus says in John 8, 34, if you break one law, you're, you're a slave to the law. If you commit one sin, you are a slave to sin. So some of us think we're, we're doing okay because we don't have this feeling of slavery. We don't have this burden on us that's crushing us, that's causing us to feel guilty and shameful and embarrassed. And it's not feeling like we're imprisoned to it. That's just because we're ignorant of God's word. One sin makes us a slave to sin. The arrogance in our heart is causing us to refuse to confess that we need a savior. And so the message of Revelation 5 is you need a Savior, and there is a Savior. In the same way that the person enslaved to sin responds to Jesus, the one who does not feel like a slave to sin must acknowledge that he is a slave to sin, he must look to Christ to be rescued. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. If we confess our sins, if we say we have no sin, John continues, then we're a liar and we're calling God a liar. We all need a savior. 
Are you trusting in the worthy one is our application. Are you calling out to Jesus? Is 100% of your confidence that you will stand before the throne of God with assurance of salvation because all of your hope is in Jesus Christ? You have stopped looking in the mirror. You have stopped trying to fidget with the key of the lock. You have understood that you need a Savior. That can be offensive news, but it's probably the kindest, most gracious thing that you can hear for some of you. You do not have what it takes to unlock the key. You do not have what it takes to stand before God. You need someone to stand before you. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Trust in the mediation of Jesus Christ or remain enslaved forever. Why do we do missions? Why does missions exist? Because Jesus Christ is worthy. The only one worthy. Lastly, verses 11 to 14. John saw and heard, John saw worship. John saw worship. This is a beautiful picture. Worship starts in heaven with the elders and the four creatures. And interesting, they're, they're worshiping in verse 9, worthy are you. They are focused on Christ and they are worshiping Christ. And then all of heaven joins in, they catch on. So, so you kind of got the, 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 the specific church in heaven is worshiping to Jesus. And then all the angels, thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads. What does myriads mean? Myriads is too many to count. So now picture that there's just too many angels to count and they're all proclaiming the same song. They're all giving honor and praise and glory to Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, the word that's used here is worthy is. The first song was worthy are you, now it's worthy is, and that indicates that the song has now changed from not just Christ, it's to Christ, but it's now a proclamation and a declaration to all of creation. And what happens? There's a third group that join in the party. Verse 13, every created thing in heaven and earth and under the earth, on the sea, and all things in them, worthy are you who is on the throne. So because of the throne and because of the promises from the throne and because of the worthy one, we worship. I love how John Piper says, uh, missions exist because worship does not. How does Isaac say no when our work has been fruitful and faithful? We exist because worship does not. When people in our cities and people in our communities bend a knee and worship the worthy one, that's when, we, that's when our job is done and we will move on. So what are, what are you worshiping? And a lot of times we think of worship as solely the songs we sing. It is absolutely that. We're seeing the songs right here in Revelation 5. But it's a helpful process to think about worship has the same word as worth. And so what are you ascribing worth to? That's a, that's a little bit easier uh, filter to consider. What are you ascribing worth to? What are you giving your heart and mind and soul and time and passion? What are you prioritizing? What are you ascribing worth to? 
Because we see in Revelation 5 that there is one and one only that is worthy of our worship. And it is Jesus. So why do we do missions? Because Jesus is worthy of all worship. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the kindness and graciousness and generous gift of revelation. Thank you that you have shown us what is to come so that we may know how to live today. You are worthy and we worship you. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Scott. Hey, can we thank Scott for being here today? Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.